And Lord, as we look at the scriptures this morning, we pray that uh, the truth, the impact of what you want us to see and hear this morning would be fully met in all of us. We ask that your spirit would open our eyes and hearts to what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Revelation 1 again. It is December 1st, and I thought about starting something on Christmas today and opted not to. We'll do that next next week. Revelation 1, you remember we went through verse 9 last week. We'll start at verse 10. We'll only get through verse 18. John continues, he says, I was in spirit or in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle or sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. You remember he's on Patmos. He's on this little rocky island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he says, on this day, he was in the spirit. Not entirely sure what this means, but it at least means this. He's in some state in which he's not limited to the normal physical limitations that any of us experience being in our body. He sees things and he hears things that he otherwise could not have. He says this happened on the Lord's Day. This may just mean Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, Sunday was typically called the Lord's Day by the early Christians. It's the day they met instead of the Sabbath. So on this day, in this altered state, he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. If you use your concordance or look up the use of trumpet in the Bible, it's, it's, uh, it tells you things that you'd expect. You know, if you hear a trumpet blast today, it gets your attention. And that's the thought, if you look at biblical usage, that's typically what you see. So you'll see trumpet blasts being used to call people to the sacrifices or to the festivities. You'll see a trumpet blast used to warn people to arm or to call the battle to commence, these types of things. One of my favorite uses of the trumpet in the Old Testament is uh, Exodus 19 and 20. And when God introduces himself to Israel, he's he's taken them out and they've seen the pillars of fire and cloud, but Moses gets them to Mount Sinai. And God says, prepare the people because I'm going to formally introduce myself, so to speak. And so in that passage, you see, it says the people are all around the mountain 
and the clouds come down. It says clouds and thick darkness and thunder and lightning. And along with this darkening over the mountain and the thunder and lightning within the clouds, it says there's a trumpet blast. And it just blares louder and louder until the people are absolutely terrified. And they say to Moses, you please go talk to God. We would like to go hide elsewhere. But when God introduces himself to Israel, he does so with the sound of this trumpet blast. And the first thing John has here in this altered state, seeing and hearing what God wants him to, is he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. So it gets his attention right away. And this is as we could say God the Father is reintroducing, perhaps, John to Jesus. So here's the sound of a trumpet. And he tells him, let's see, verse 11, write in a book, in a biblios, same thing we get our Bible from, the word biblios, write in a book what you see, you're going to send it to the seven churches. We won't uh, bother going into the seven churches today. We'll look at these individually in chapters 2 and 3. But this trumpet voice tells him, after it gets his attention, write down the things you're going to see and send these to these churches. Verse 12, so I've heard, of, I've heard a voice like a trumpet. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw. And this, you know, if you read this passage and you let your imagination work just a little bit, this is a dramatic thing. We don't know, maybe it's in darkness, who knows, but... But he hears the blast, and then he turns, and he's going to describe for us what he sees as he turns. It's like a play or a drama on a stage. The first thing he says in verse 12 is, When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, although the seven golden lampstands are listed here first, they will be the last thing, along with some stars that are actually identified or interpreted for us. Uh, The seven golden lampstands are part of the scene. They're the first thing that he sees Uh, But he has more important things to describe or to tell us about. These lampstands, if you think of a floor lamp, you guys probably all have at home, that would kind of be the thought. It's an oil lamp. It's on a tall stand. There could have been one wick in each of these, or there could have been several. Oil lamps in those days could have used either. Probably not a menorah. Sometimes we think, if we think of Jewish uh, images, think of a, a menorah. Probably not a menorah. It would tell us something like a seven tiered candle. I don't think that's what we're looking at, but these tall oil lamps burning brightly, maybe in a circle, first thing he sees. Verse 13, and in the middle or in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like a son of man. Uh, Son of man's an interesting phrase. You see it in Daniel 7, and if you remember, it's not all that long ago we looked at this, but when God the Father is looking down on earth and judging it, The Son of Man is the one who comes to him, to his throne, and receives God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom. And then you see this phrase used throughout Luke's gospel to describe Jesus as the Son of Man. It's kind of like he is a man, but he's more than just a man. And he's at least the representative of men in general. He's God's chosen man. So he sees one like a Son of Man. So candles, lamps. Now here's a person. He's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Again, this all goes... Did we say earlier, you know, there's nothing new in Revelation, or very little, certainly. Almost all the imagery imagery you see in this book all goes back to Old Testament. And here, think of a couple things. Daniel's 
reference in Daniel 7, not only related to the Son of Man, but this will come up again in verse 14, but also when it says he's got a a robe that goes to his feet and his chest is crossed with this golden sash, this is the kind of garb that the high priest in Israel wore. The robe specifically says in Exodus and Leviticus, the robe that must reach to the priest's feet, and they had a sash that went around their chest as well as the ephod with the jewels representing the the tribes of Israel. So this all harkens back. So John sees someone, this son of man, in the midst of these uh, burning oil lamps that looks like a priest out of the Old Testament. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. You know, typically if I think of Jesus, I don't think of a white-haired individual. But this description in Revelation says when John sees him, his hair is as white as snow. You know, we tend to think of Jesus, I think now, as ageless, and and we'll talk about imagery later. But this white hair, probably on Jesus in glory, is probably meant to reflect a few things. Uh, He's ageless, or he's old age. You know, if you read in Proverbs, gray hair, white hair is a sign of age. He's the one who... The first and the last, the eternal one, white hair, perhaps representing either agelessness or eternity, so to speak. Typically, also in Proverbs, white hair represents wisdom. You know, if you had lived long enough to have white hair, the thought was you had accrued wisdom, hopefully, along the way. So wisdom, it may also reflect purity, but this white hair starts at his head after it gives us his clothing. Uh, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Um, you know, Superman had x-ray vision. You know, he could see through the walls and stuff. When John looks at Jesus, his eyes have the penetrating quality of flames, of fire, so that when you saw Jesus like this, this would be a little bit of a frightening experience. The thought is probably that his vision is so keen and so intense that it consumes or it sees behind or through everything he looks at. It's better than the x-ray vision. Lead doesn't keep it from functioning properly like Superman. This is x-ray vision magnified. His eyes are like these flames of fire. He can see everything. Coming down, it says his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. This would be something we typically don't see, you know, a furnace and metals glowing in it. But if you take brass, you've all seen brass, kind of a golden color, be kind of a golden color to begin with, but then if you heat it up, it would glow. So it would glow a brassy colored gold or copper color. Probably this whole picture of Jesus seems to show him as both a priest and a judge. He has eyes that see everything. His feet look like glowing brass. If you look at the uses of brass in Judaism, and especially related to the tabernacle, Brass typically was associated with everything related to sacrifices, to meeting God's justice. So the altar the the animals were burned on was brass. And the laver, the great big laver of water that was carried on the backs of the 12 bulls was made of brass. These things that you had to come to and utilize before you were clean enough to stand before God were all made of brass. So brass seems to be a symbol or a sign of judgment. Here's this one who sees everything, and where he walks, he brings truth and justice or judgment with him. 
feet that glow like burnished brass. And then it says, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, I think the thought here is not that if I stand in the woods and I hear the little tinkling of the brook, you know, going down the hillside. That's not the thought here. This would be like if you've ever been to uh, Yellowstone, there's Yellowstone Falls. How many of you here, have you been to Yellowstone, anybody? It's a big waterfall. And if you stand by it, what you hear, Peggy Wright, is a roar. You hear all this water coming down this little gorge, and it's a roaring, it's a magnified roaring sound. I suppose the same would be true at Niagara Falls. So the sound here, the thought is, we heard his, his uh, voice early has the clarity of a trumpet blast. Here it has the power of flooding waters or overflowing waterfalls. It has this deep, resonating, powerful quality. Voice like the sound of many waters. <clears throat> it's gone down to his feet. Now he comes out to his hand. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now we're not going to finish chapter 1 today, so we won't go into that. We'll look at that a little later. But he's got these stars in his hand. And then out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, When he speaks, his words are like a sharp two-edged sword. Again, we're talking about judgment and truth. When this figure of Jesus speaks, his words have the power of a sharp sword. It's incisive. We'll look at Hebrews later for just a moment as another reflection on this. His voice, his word, powerful like a trumpet and clear, powerful like water, but sharp and incisive like a, uh, like a sword. And then his face was like the sun shining in its strength. John's described him from the top down, clothing top down. Now he comes back to his face. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. You get the picture here of this glowing, penetrating gaze, powerfully voiced person. Let me read to you out of Acts 26, related to his face shining, what Paul said to a king when he talked about his introduction to this Jesus. Acts 26, 12, he said, I was journeying to Damascus at midday. I saw on the way a light from heaven. It's the middle of the day. The sun is straight overhead. I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I asked, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. Here's Paul's experience, like John. He's on the road. There's a light. It's the middle of the day. This is like noon on July 4th. This is hot and bright as it gets. But the light that he sees occludes the light of the midday sun. This light that says, I am Jesus, is brighter than the sun in its fullness. And that's the thought here John says. John's looking up. It's all he can do to look at this figure that's standing among the lamps. The eyes, he's looking at eyes that can pierce right through, and he's looking at a face that is so bright it would be hard to gaze at. You know, if you look at the sun today, your vision, uh, I suppose your iris trying close, you'll go blind temporarily if you look at the sun when it's that bright. But that's the thought here. It's hard for John to look at his face. What a description here. You've got this figure standing among the oil lamps. He's clothed like a priest with the glory of a king. 
His face shines stronger than the sun. His eyes are like penetrating fire. His head and his hair are white as snow. And his words are sharp like a sword. They're clear like a trumpet. They're powerful like a waterfall. And this is what John says. I jumped up and down for joy. (laughs) No. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, I, I looked at him and my response was totally out of my control. John didn't choose to fall down like he was dead. John reacted to what he saw. He couldn't stand up. You remember in Daniel, when Daniel sees the angel above the river that, that I believe was Jesus, he swooned. He just, he falls out. He falls over. And not until the angel comes over and touches him can he even get on his hands and knees. And then touched again, can he stand so that he can hear? That's the same thing here. Now remember in life, John, the one seeing this, knew Jesus, talked with him, touched him, he says in 1 John, ate with him, put his head on his chest the night of the Last Supper. When he sees this Jesus, this same Jesus, now as he is in heaven, he can't look at him. He just falls over. He doesn't have the strength to stand in his presence. This is Jesus glorified. So he falls over like a dead man. And I love this. In the midst of this picture of Jesus in power and glory, this judge treading with brass feet, as it were, with a sword out of his mouth, Jesus' response to John, this little worm now that's fallen out in front of him, lying on the ground, Jesus' response, this powerful person, full of power and glory, says, put his right hand on him. He's got to stoop down to do it. He's lying on the ground, stoops down to put his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, John was probably terrified, petrified, fallen out, totally overwhelmed. And Jesus' response to him is to put his hand on him and touch him and say, John, don't be afraid. That's a good thing for you and I. Fear not is what he says to him. And he says, fear not, look at this, because he says, I am the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. This is used elsewhere clearly to speak of God the Father. Jesus says, I am the eternally existent one like my Father, The person you see that you used to know on earth, I am God Almighty, and I'm telling you, don't be afraid. He also says, verse 18, to reassure John, I am the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. Remember, this same John saw Jesus dead, dead on the cross, dead in the linens, dead laid in a tomb. Jesus says, yes, I am the one that was dead. But I'm alive forevermore. I am now qualified as the living one. In fact, it's interesting. In Luke 24, when the women come on Sunday morning to put more spices and linens on Jesus' body, the angel says to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is the one typified or characterized as the living one, the one with life. He continues, he says, also don't be afraid, John. You know me and I know you. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. 
Keys, in biblical usage, almost always reflect power and authority. This will come up later in the letter uh, to Philadelphia. Let's say Dan is the master of his kingdom. Dan doesn't run his household duties. Dan's got other people, servants, to do that for him. So Dan gives me the keys. And Dan gives me the keys to his safe deposit box and to his storehouse and to his treasury. So if I have Dan's keys, I have Dan's authority over the strong box and the safe deposit box. Whatever he's given me the keys for, he's given me authority to exercise to open doors or to close them or to use whatever's behind them. Jesus says here to John, don't be afraid, John, because I have authority over death and the grave or the place of the dead. Hades here, the place where dead people go, John. I have authority, I have power over death itself and over the realm of the dead. I am the living one. Jesus, as creator, would have had authority over these also, as God the Father always has. But in this sense, Jesus says, I have authority as the one who died, who went there, and then who conquered death and the grave. So my authority here is not just as deity, as God. It's as the one who has personally, as the Son of Man, conquered sin and death and the grave. Listen to a a similar passage out of Hebrews chapter 2. This says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, the children being believers, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Remember, the devil thinks he's getting rid of Jesus at the cross when in fact Jesus is getting rid of the devil at the cross. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. As human beings, we all know we're here on the earth for a little while, and it's only a little while, and we're going to die. If you don't have a Savior, you don't know what death is going to mean for you. So here in Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus conquers the fear we human beings have of death, our great enemy on the earth. He conquers it through his death and resurrection. And that's the same thing Jesus is telling John. John, you don't have to be afraid because I'm the living one. I'm the one who has power over death and the grave. So you've got this really glorious, powerful description of Jesus here in Revelation chapter 1. You remember we said at the beginning, I think it was the first week we opened this book, we said that this is a book in which God the Father says, I'm going to unveil my son. I'm going to reveal my son Jesus for your gaze. And so this is the gaze, this is the statue as it were. This is the image God the Father reveals to us when he tells us about his son. It's of this glorious, powerful person in heaven, this conqueror, this high priest and this coming king. Now, you and I can read all kinds of images of Jesus in the Bible. You can go to Isaiah 53 and you can read about God's suffering servant, this one who would suffer on a cross and and suffer shamefully, this one in whom there was nothing, Isaiah 53 says, there was nothing physical about his appearance that would make you think he was desirable. He wasn't attractive to look at. 
Or there's a portrait of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, isn't there? The night before he's betrayed, Jesus takes those elements from the Passover, the bread and the wine, and he says, now when you eat these things, I want you to remember me. So we've got a portrait in the Lord's Supper so that when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, Jesus says, I want you to remember what I've done for you. I want you to remember what I was willing to do to die for your sins. And I promise 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, when you eat it, you're going to remember that this is only for a while because I'll come back and I'll get you. So that's another portrait of Jesus. He's the one who loved us enough to die for us. Similarly, John 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, there's the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. So these are all, they're great, they're images. And at Christmas, we've got a few others, don't we? We've got a baby wrapped up in the food trough, don't we? Or if we read Luke's gospel, we've got the 12-year-old in the temple. We've got these other images of Jesus. But when God the Father wants to unveil his son to us in Revelation, it's not a little baby that he shows us. And it's not an unattractive suffering servant out of Isaiah 53. Even though Jesus will bear the scars of his crucifixion as his marks of glory, that's not what God the Father shows us. It's of this glorious, powerful priest, king, conqueror, this one that we can't even look at without falling apart. My question to myself and us as a group is, when we think of Jesus today, do you think of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, effeminate individual like you can see on prayer cards? You know what I'm talking about? the uh, Norwegian version of Jesus. Or uh, sometimes I think culture tends to see him like a Santa Claus figure. This benevolent guy, he's a nice guy, he's like you and me. He might be as nice as you and me. And if you ignore him, there's no big deal because he's a nice guy. And if you want to follow him, that's great because he's a nice guy, but there's nothing else to commend him to you. Or is the image you have of Jesus or the image I have of Jesus, is he stuck on the cross? If you go into Christian bookstores, crucifixes. I grew up with crucifixes all around me. Jesus is stuck on the cross. That's not the image that God shows us when he says, I'm going to unwrap my son and show you what he looks like. He is the one who past tense conquered sin and death. And now he's in glory. He's so glorious you can't hardly look at him. So he has left this servant, suffering servant image behind. Uh, we talked about the lion and the lamb and, and our church name, the lion and the lamb. This is great imagery. And in chapter 5, when God shows us the lion, he looks like a lamb because he's still looking back at what it cost Jesus to redeem us. But when you look at this image or when you go to chapter 19 in Revelation, It is not a little lamb that we look at. It's not a wimpy guy. It's not an unattractive, weak individual. It's a powerful, powerful king. I have ruined a few stories for people I've been told in the past because I've given the climax of a story. Chris, have you finished The Return of the King? Thank you. Okay. Well, that's okay. I won't spoil this for you. If you haven't finished The Return of the King, you may cover your ears, as I've seen people do here before. I was thinking about this imagery. Uh, How many here have read Tolkien's trilogy? How many people are familiar with this? Okay. If you haven't, you need to, just so you can join in on our conversations. 
But in, in Tolkien's trilogy, you've got this figure who is certainly, I don't know if J.R.R. meant this or not when he wrote it, but he is certainly like a Christ figure. You've got this person called Aragorn. And he's of royal lineage. But when these lowly hobbits meet him, Jess, right? At Fat Butterbur's Inn in Bree, the prancing pony, Aragorn is introduced for the first time He's tall and lanky, but his boots are covered with mud, and his cloak is weather-worn, and he's shaggy. And they don't know, these little guys, whether they can trust him or not. They don't know if he's evil or good. They say that he feels fair but looks foul. And, but they know there's a depth beyond just his physical appearance, but they can't quite put their finger on it. But this Aragorn, this guy that there's no physical attraction from, And they don't know what to make of him at first. And some people scorn him. He's called Strider. He's really a king, but they don't know it. So the fat people who don't know any better call him Strider or Rangers or whatever. Thick-headed. They can't see beyond the surface. Later, though, this same character, Aragorn, leads the armies of the West. And they conquer the arch enemy, Sauron. They defeat his armies, and they defeat him. And at one of the climaxes of the book, you see Aragorn come back to his city, Minas Tirith, as the conquering king. And he's crowned there in front of the city. And he receives his bride, whom he has waited ages to be wed to. And the culmination of all his work takes place and the years fall from his appearance, and people see him as differently now than they had before. They don't see this unattractive, weather-worn, haggard individual. They see a king in his glory, looking like his forebears did, these glorious guys that had come out of the West. And that's the thought here. And the people who ignored him before he wins the final battle, they ignored him at their peril. And now he's the king, and it's as his pleasure that he dispenses rewards or judgment. And it was whether or not he was accepted or rejected by these individuals before that determines their relationship with him now that he's received the crown and the kingdom. And his royal reign begins. That's the thought here. So John sees Jesus that he used to know, used to be pals with. They're not quite pals anymore. It's a little different. He sees him in his glory. He sees him as he now is and as he will be. And he falls down in front of him and King Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't fear, and lifts him back up and entreats him with us to join him in eternity, in his new kingdom, we the bride, wedding with him. He's dispensing his rewards. That's where all this is headed. But he's not weak Jesus, and he's not mild Jesus, and he's not Jesus in a manger, and he's not Jesus on a cross. He's this powerful, terrifying king and priest standing in heaven, glorified. As Christmas season begins, as you think about this, this is December 1st, Thanksgiving's over, we're headed to Christmas, all the things that go along with that. It's a great time of year to remember that Jesus isn't just the baby in the manger. We're thrilled he came, but if that's all he did, we're still without hope. 
headed to hell. We need this Jesus in heaven. We need the one who conquered sin and death and the grave. He's the one who can dispense life now. Jesus on the cross couldn't put his hand on you and say, don't fear. Until sin and death are conquered, we have something to fear. But as the conquering one, he can now give assurance to you and I in his glorious state. He can give us assurance and say, fear not. But it is as this glorious one, eyes of fire, hair white as snow, hard to look at, face shining like the sun, powerful voice and words. Let me close by reading out of Revelation 19. This image carried just a little further when he says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. This is King Jesus now, not just the high priest welcoming John in heaven. This is King Jesus descending to earth to take over his kingdom. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, circlets of gold, as it were. In other words, all the crowns that can be from earth are all on his head. He has a name written which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Jesus we have to do with. This is the Jesus we have to do with. Hebrews elsewhere says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is this Jesus. This Christmas season, if you know him, think about him in his glory, not just as the one who died for our sins, which we're thrilled, we're glad, that makes everything else possible. Is this glorious, ruling, reigning priest and king in heaven. If you're not sure about where you stand with Jesus, by all means... Take advantage of this Christmas season to make sure that he is your Savior. You know, we can meet him in one of two ways. We can meet him as Savior, as John knows him, or we can meet him as Judge. He's good at both. And as a Savior, he saves us absolutely to the end. He can say to us, fear not. As Judge, he has power. No one can thwart his purpose in judgment. Meet him as your savior. Don't meet him as your judge. Let's pray. Lord, I think it is so easy for us to view you commonly, to fail to esteem you as you are. You walked on earth like one of us with your glory veiled, and it is in that sense that we often tend to think of you. Lord Jesus, we forget your dread power, your awesome and awful glory. Glory and power, Lord, that we cannot stand before unless you give us the power to do so. Lord Jesus, you are our high priest today. You intercede for us in heaven. You have put sin away. You have conquered sin and death in the grave. And you invite all of us on earth to trust you 
and to receive you as Savior and King so that we don't need to meet you as judge. Lord, thank you that you've come to save us. Thank you that this Christmas season we can remember that you are that Savior. Lord, help us to view you as you are and not as we would have you. Help us to view you as your Father reveals you. And help us with John voluntarily and just as the reaction of our souls and hearts to fall before you, Lord, and to worship you. Thank you for your grace and truth. Thank you that you humbled yourself as a man on the earth and that you stoop even now from your glory to put your hand on us and say, don't fear, don't fear. Thanks for the gift of your son this season, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.